0: And now it's time to sit back and enjoy The Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast.
1: Hey, this is a rock and roll museum. You guys don't belong in here. <laughs> They ranted,
2: they fainted, their eyes were glassy, some pulled their hair out, some tore their dresses, they threw notes of a very uh, undesirable nature on the stage. I'll tell you all about it.
0: Welcome to Long Play, a podcast where nerds rock out with their spock out. Hey, everybody. This is Michael Bailey, and welcome to Tales of the. Wait, no, that's not what this show is. This isn't Tales of the Justice Society of America, nor is it Comics Monthly Monday. This is Long Play. Wait a minute. I thought this was the quarter CD podcast. <laughs> welcome back to Long Play, where normally it's Bob Fisher or Chris Honeywell or any number of other people getting together to talk about albums, but none of them are here today. We have kicked them out of the studio. I am joined by frequent collaborator with just about all of the Two True Freaks people, but does not actually have a show on the Two True Freaks network yet. Your negotiations are harder because you're actually a professor who knows something about the economy. DeManzo's having, I think, a little harder time with you. But we have as Shag would call him Professor Alan Quarterbent. (laughs)
3: <laughs> that is catching <laughs> on it is great
0: to be here to talk about rock and roll rock and or roll let me peel the curtain back a little folks a couple, about a year or two back on, between my show Views from the Long Box and Alan and his daughter Emily's show Short Box Showcase uh, you guys got like 50 now so um, Box Showcase, we did a crossover about the Kents which is this great miniseries written by John Ostrander you know, with art by Tom Mandrake and Tim, oh, uh, Tim Truman. Truman. And we had a great time recording that. And as often happens when the group of us, any of us, get together to record, we have little side conversations. And it was during one of those side conversations that Alan, Emily, and I discovered that we all share this love for not only Meatloaf, but for Jim Steinman in general. It goes beyond just liking, you know, Meatloaf singing the songs. We like the man that wrote the songs, that literally wrote the songs. I'm like Barry Manilow, <laughs> who did not write the songs. Poser. That makes the whole world sing. Uh, and So we have been talking for the longest time about getting together to talk about their first big album, Bad Out of Hell, which was released on October 21st, 1977, had a very long gestation period, took a while to take off, but is still, to this day, an extremely popular album. And we thought it would be fun to get together and talk about it. On this show, and and we asked Chris Honeywell if he would mind, and I, I he almost gave me money to do it. <laughs> he seemed like really excited that I guess other people are doing the work, and all he has to do is kind of maybe edit it and put it out there. So
3: that does seem like a win-win.
0: Before we get into the album itself, when did you get into Meatloaf uh, as a singer?
3: Well, I will answer that question in just a second. But we okay. talked about the long gestation period, not just for the album, but for this episode. Yes. And my question to you. Okay. Honestly, cross your heart. How panicked were you when Tom Panarese's April Fool's episode came out? I was of a pop little, culture affidavit.
0: I was a little... Uh, yeah, I was a little, was a little worried, too. <laughs> like, you know, Tom would not have minded us doing this. Uh, you know, because, one, Tom's, Tom's a great guy in general. You know, you don't want to step on somebody else's toes, exactly. like, right after they did something you know, we all do comic book shows and you and I through two very different formats have kind of a hodgepodge type thing going on. Right. Uh, You have a very specific set of guidelines. You had to pay 25 cents for the book to talk about it. uh, Though you have cheated on that from time to time, much to Shag's chagrin. (laughs) Come Uh, in, come in off the ledge, buddy, come in off the ledge. It'll be okay. And you talk about it for about 18 to 25 minutes I am still talking about one right now. Uh, A good example is, on one of your first episodes, you covered Action Comics number 702. Like, about five years later, Jeffrey and I covered (laughs) it It only
3: seemed like that.
0: (laughs) Jeffrey and I covered it on From Crisis to Crisis. A lot of time was in between that. Now, if it would have been really close, I wouldn't have minded anyways, but personally, as a podcaster... I like to give somebody else the shot if they were planning it.
3: Yeah, I mean, so. it's, it's February. Your episode was Armageddon. Mine was Deep Impact. Yeah. <laughs> so
0: So <laughs> yours was the one where they didn't need to die, is what you said. Saying.
3: <laughs> saying. I'm the one with the quarter of the box office of the other one. Well, to answer your question from many minutes ago. Okay. I probably picked this up in 1979 or 1980. As part of joining Columbia House, Hello Tom Panneries.
0: And Back when it was albums.
3: <laughs> I think I probably got the cassette.
0: Oh, okay. I didn't know if I the, got cassette... the
3: cassette. I got the cassette, I'm sure. So maybe may have been even a couple years later then. But it got warped and stretched and whatever, and eventually got replaced by the CD. I'm not even sure where that CD is now. As I bought it digitally at this point. So bought it at least three times, maybe four, maybe five. It's hard to keep track so many
0: versions of it so
3: (laughs) the only one that counts is if it says songs by jim steinman on the cover
0: yes absolutely not
3: every edition does
0: sadly no which you know as we're probably going to say a bunch of times in this episode you can't take steinman out of this equation this is the fantastic four of rock and roll you have to have lee and kirby to create the fantastic four uh, and you can't say the Fantastic Four by Stan Lee. And you really even can't say the, uh, the Fantastic Four by Jack Kirby. Though there are people on both sides of that argument that will make that argument. <laughs> right. I'm not one of those people. I think, you know, we we joked about this on that little mini-sode you released called the Steinman cast. <laughs> where we compared them to Jack, yes. Jack Lee and, and Stan Kirby. Uh, no, but to <laughs> Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. That together it's it, it's amazing on their own it's it's different maybe not as good but when these two get together it's just it, there's a when harmony it, when there it works, that is, it just works absolutely i am a little bit younger than you i discovered this when i was about 12 years old most of my musical experiences and i don't get to talk about music all that much so that's another reason why i'm kind of excited about doing this i usually talk about comics and movies But uh, musically, I'm the youngest of four, so a lot of growing up, a lot of my musical tastes kind of depended on my parents and my sisters. My eldest sister, Mary, was into all the pop stuff in the 80s. Ginny had a little more esoteric taste. There was a point where she really liked the Rolling Stones. There was a point where she really liked the Doors. And then at some point, she got her hands on Bad Out of Hell. And I, I stole the tape from her. And I just fell in love with it. And I didn't understand at the time. I can articulate it now, but uh, as a twelve-year-old, there was something about this album, and, and, and I'm not just talking like one or two songs, like the entire album. Yes. Because you know we're, we live in a day, and everybody talks about this on long play, I know, but we live in a day where listening to an like an album isn't really. It's kind of an afterthought now. You know, there was a time, especially I, I think the '70s was kind of the heyday of this, where you listen to the entire record you know when they put these things together it wasn't a bunch of singles just smashed up against each other it it represented something in that artist's career i mean there was commercial pop and there always will be but now it seems it's all about the single it's all about paying the dollar 29 to 99 cents a song when when i listened to this yesterday it is the first time i've listened to this album straight through in order Probably since I was a teenager.
3: (laughs) See, now you can just put it on shuffle. That's (laughs) the
0: difference. Or you just grab, like, two or three songs and you throw it in your playlist. I mean, it's that sort of thing. So it was really interesting listening to a collection of songs in the order that the producers and the writers and the singer and all that thought you should listen to it in. Mm -hmm. So, you know, everything is placed on this album for a reason. Yeah. And it just launched me on this whole thing of, of loving Meatloaf as a singer. I mean, I was a senior in high school when "Bad Out of Hell 2" came out, and that was gigantic, mm-hmm. at least with my friends. And then they had another falling out. We you know, it took forever to get "Bad out of Hell three. But still, there's something about these songs and, and this album in particular that just it just speaks to me on every level. There's nothing about this album that I don't like. There's just things I like about the album more than other parts of it, <laughs> I guess, if that makes any sense.
3: I, I think there's one key thing to your story that, that lines up with my story, that even though we are different ages, I found this album probably when I was about 15, 14, 15. You found it when you were 12,
1: mm-hmm. and I
3: think that is the perfect time, Yeah. even though that was eight, eight or ten years apart. This is for adolescent boys. Mm hmm. And that, I think that is the chord it struck in both of us. Not only that particular group, but it is almost target marketed for that group.
0: It's, it's funny because I, I, years ago I picked up this DVD. It was at Walmart for like five bucks. And I guess there was this whole series of documentaries that this company put together, but this one's about Bad Out of Hell. So they were interviewing. Meatloaf, Jim Steinman, who wrote all the songs, Ellen Foley, who was the backup singer on the album, uh, Carla DeVito, who was the face of the female element of the album, and as well, producer Todd Rundgren, who I know you have more to say about than I do. The one thing they kept hammering home is that as epic as these songs are and as emotional as these songs are, they're fun. Right. You know, as we go through the songs, you know, you're going to talk about the different influences and such. But I think why it hits teenage boys and teenage girls because one of my best friends in high school was a loved Meatloaf to the point where she had the albums between Bad Out of Hell and Bad Out of Hell Two. That is dedication. You know, and and not just Dead Ringer, which Dead Ringer was the one that you would find at the gas station. You know, when the gas station I would believe have. Believe little...
3: I found it in the two dollar bin. which... <laughs> Is speaks a lot to me, I think.
0: <laughs> <laughs> is is $2 the quarter bin of, of albums? Of albums,
3: I think. That, that's a rough equivalent.
0: Okay, because I was, I was <laughs> wondering what the Based on the original, is.
3: maybe percentage of the original <laughs> cover price. I think it's about the same.
0: <laughs> Before we really get into the songs, though, I do want to talk about the album cover. Oh, good God, this thing is is over the top in every way shape form and fashion it's got this red sky not crisis red sky uh and (laughs) it all
3: goes back to superman
0: it does yes it does absolutely and it's got a cemetery and you have this as wikipedia describes it futuristic motorcycle rider the motorcycle has jet exhaust and a (laughs) bat like figure on the tower (laughs) of a building i don't know i don't know how you feel about this one i i prefer bat out of hell too but that's because i like blue more than i like red uh, what do you think of the album cover? It is certainly attention-getting. Mm-hmm. And I think it works that
3: we're talking about rock and roll on the Tutu Freaks network. There is a connection between rock music, especially of this of this era in the 70s, with fantasy elements,
1: mm-hmm.
3: sci-fi elements. That was starting to come together. And this you know, has the feel of... Not of a Tolkien novel, but you know, a couple a knockoff of a knockoff mm-hmm. of a Tolkien novel almost, or a futuristic sci-fi. The world has gone to hell type of image,
0: and that's that describes what the seventy, the end of the seventies, and yeah, in <laughs> pretty good standards. No, it's 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 got that kind of heavy metal, yeah. and I, I'm not I'm not talking the music type. I'm talking the magazine. Heavy metal, mm, that right. that type of artwork. Mm-hmm. Uh, which was on a lot of rock albums since the seventies and onward. It really hasn't stopped. <laughs> there really isn't a point where, where where you don't where where there isn't going to be a band that's going to have that kind of majestic album cover. And and I guess maybe it was more important at this point because really since since the predominant musical Conveyance was the 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 record. I, I mean, I I can't speak to this because when I really started buying music, it was CDs, and you bought the CD of the people that you liked. It's not like you just leafed through CDs and you liked a cover so you bought it. I don't know if it was different right in, in the 70s for people that would like see like like if you didn't know who Meatloaf was or Jim Steinman was and you saw this this album cover, what did it say to you? You know, it's like, like, oh, my God. But it describes the album perfectly. It's over the top. It's wanting to be something that the creators aren't. I love Jim Steinman to death. He's a bit of a nerd. Uh, That's nothing against him because he's a geek in all the right places. Yep. But the one thing that they joked about constantly during the documentary is that Steinman was writing about experiences that, that no one believed he ever had.
3: Right. Maybe the same or similar thing that you've seen. I saw uh, Todd Rundgren was quoted as saying, and he, he, he produced the album, he said that he can't imagine Steinman ever being on a beach with the most beautiful girl in school, Yeah. but he can imagine Steinman imagining it about himself and that's what this album is (laughs) the album does not take place in reality
0: no not at all it takes
3: place in imagination not necessarily the fantasy world of the cover specifically but in spirit it it takes place in a different type
0: of heightened reality going into the first track bat out of hell
2: shut the streets on down in the tunnel with a deadly horizon Oh, I swear I saw a young boy down in the cover he was starting to foam in the heat Oh, baby, you're the only thing in this whole world that's good and good and right And wherever you are and wherever you go there's always gonna be some light But I gotta get out Take it out now, before you finally break it down. So we gotta make the most of our one night together when it's only a know we'll both be so alone. Rolling all that team.
3: title track is a perfect intro to the album be mm-hmm. this this announces the arrival of Meatloaf better than any song on this album does I think if you had to come up with the quintessential Meatloaf Jim Steinman song you can't do better than this one for one thing it's almost 10 minutes long we do have to mention this is a full sized album This is probably technically a slightly longer than average album. Mm -hmm. 46, 47 minutes. Broken into,
0: count them, seven
3: songs. (laughs) That's
0: an average
3: of more than six and a half minutes per song.
0: You know, the joke was, in the second album, songs on Meatloaf's new album may appear longer than they are.
3: (laughs) (laughs) And this one, I, I just have a feeling... That this one was over 10 minutes. And at some point, somewhere in the production process, either Rundgren, though probably not, someone from the record company, that we cannot do a song longer than 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. The answer was okay. Nine minutes, 53 seconds. I hope that's how the conversation went.
0: Most of the time I get the feeling that if there was a cut or a change that, that, that dropped the, the, the track time, it was Rundgren making that decision. Right? Uh, which, which is great because you had Steinman who has all these out-of-this-world concepts. You have Meatloaf who wants to sing all of Steinman's out-of-this-world concepts. You need to have somebody that's on board with that but is still going to sit back and go, Guys, guys, guys. <laughs>
3: That's why, in a lot of ways, Rundgren really was a great, I was going to say a great choice for this, but in essence, he was about the only person interested.
0: Exactly. You know,
3: as the story goes, they shopped this around for quite some time. They even shopped it around after they had made it for mm-hmm. quite some time. You mentioned a 1977 release. It's recorded in 75. And I wanted to point out that in, also in that year of 1975, Rundgren released an album called Initiation of which the entire second side was one 22 minutes song Called pompously enough, A Treatise on Cosmic Fire. So he was not only unafraid of over-the-top crazy, wacky imagery and long songs that Steinman brought to the table. I'm guessing he's one of the few producers or performers who may have actually gotten what Steinman was trying to
0: Before I get into this song, uh, it's a good time just to mention the fact that this album had such a long gestation period because, like you said, it took them so long to find somebody that would even touch the material. They couldn't do demos. They tried, Meatloaf said, and it didn't work out. Because you can't demo these songs. You either do it or you don't. And they would go up and down in New York City, going from record company to record company to record company, They'd be insulted sometimes. Uh, somebody, one of the executives that Meatloaf just was furious with said that Steinman didn't know anything about rock music, and he's just, you know, walking rock and roll encyclopedia. So it was just, you know, Rundgren was the one that said, yeah, come on in and do it. And then even after they did, because it was Rundgren's label, if I'm remembering how the story goes, it was Rundgren's label, but it was part of Warner Brothers. So they produced the album and then Warner Brothers is like, nah, sorry, not exactly. interesting. And then they had to find somebody else. And again, you they had to find somebody else that excuse the language didn't give a shit about commercial success.
3: That is eventually you know? what they found. But I I love that this the genesis of this first song. You know, Steinman said that his goal in writing it was to create the most epic sort of car crash song, mm-hmm. in his, his motorcycle crash song ever you know dead man's curve or something like that. last
0: kiss yeah turned
3: up to 11 12 13
0: (laughs) well it's one of those things where you put this album on and it hits you in the chest right right from word go you just have the the drums and the guitars and then it goes into one of the things that i love about jim steinman music is how integral the piano is to all of his songs You think of piano with rock music, but you don't think of it as like driving rock music, whereas he makes it work. And you go into that, you know, that up and down and up and down and up and down the scales. And then, you know, the drums come back in. You know, it's like the opening credits to a movie. You know, this is going to surprise no one. I know this is based on car crashes and stuff. I always get this as Batman leaving the Batcave every
3: night. (laughs) Of course you do, Michael.
0: And I don't apologize for that because, one, Steinman wrote a Batman musical in the late 90s. So it's not like out of the realm of possibility that he would be connected to the character. But even though this song is about dying in a car crash, it could just as easily be Dark Knight Returns. I also did a lot of musicals in high school, and I like musical theater. And this is a, a synthesis of both of those types of things. But not done in a cheesy... Well, it's a little cheesy. But it's not done in an unpleasing way. His vocals are not your typical lead singer vocals. Uh, in fact, they, uh, they, they would say later, he, you know, he ruined his voice doing the tour of this album. I can because, totally see that. I mean, if you watch live performances of his, like in 1980, like when he was on Saturday Night Live, by the way, he was a musical guest for Tim Curry. That's perfect. Um, but you listen to it and his voice is scratchy and it sounds completely different and that's because what they later said was that Meatloaf was was not a rock singer he was more of an opera singer he should have only been doing two shows a week and he was doing six which is why even to this day he doesn't sound the same the great thing about all of these songs is with the exception of 2 out of 3 ain't bad which I think is the most... Single ready. They all have a build and a payoff. It, it goes up to the crash element of the song, and then it's really quiet. And then right at the end, it comes back and it hits you in the chest again. And and driving to this music is difficult because you don't want to get pulled over.
3: <laughs> but but in this in this song in particular, like I said, we have so many quintessential meatloaf things we've got motorcycles and Mm -hmm. sirens and bloodshot streets and moonlight and the sun and the dawn uh heaven yes and 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 there's always a a weather report in the song somewhere
0: right (laughs) it tells whether
3: it's raining or it's sleeting or if it's a chilly california wind if there's snow outside (laughs) and and also there's one thing that happens in a lot of these songs and again it speaks to the the i think the musical theater background is that we have Meatloaf singing the same lyrics in two different tempos,
1: mm-hmm. you know,
3: in two different ways. He'll he'll revisit usually a verse in a chorus at, at one point in a slowly melodic way, or even a even a, a slower rock way, and then in a much almost double time uh, method. And that's just got to be hard
0: on the voice. The funny thing about the motorcycles in this song mm-hmm. is it's a story that Steinman tells. It was bug, bugging Todd for the, the motorcycles. It's like, well, it ain't going to be the motorcycles. And that's him whining. That's not me. That's that, that's him making fun of himself. And apparently it's like, you really want that? And he sat there. And then they played, isolated the track that he did where he goes from the crash into the guitar solo and doesn't miss a beat because he, did, he didn't have sound effects. They did this all with guitars, right? And they made guitars sound like motorcycles.
3: That to me was an amazing revelation when I heard that whatever ten years ago or whatever that that was not actually a motorcycle
0: in the Mm -hmm. song. Everything about this album and Steinman Steinman's music, you know, we mentioned Meatloaf, and you can't take Meat obviously you can't take Meatloaf out of the equation because his voice is the one carrying it through. But the older I get and the more I listen to these albums, the more I appreciate Jim Steinman as a musician. Because you know this is this is his he's the mad scientist Meatloaf's the creature. I think they agree with that assessment too because they've they've mentioned that that you know when he's on stage he's a beast and he's playing a different character for every song and sweating profusely and they at the end of concerts he would just pass out and they would have an oxygen mask. They found out recently he had a heart defect.
3: But but you know, tying it into Kirby and Lee, mm-hmm. you know Meatloaf needed Steinman to create these soaring operatic songs, but mm-hmm. there are not very many singers who could pull them off.
0: No, not really. Steinman
3: I mean, searched long and hard before he found Meatloaf.
0: And they just kind of uh, found each other uh, during doing a musical called More Than You Deserve. Meatloaf's audition song was, uh, uh, you know, I want to be as heavy as Jesus, and Steinman's reaction was, I think you're as heavy as two Jesuses. Um <laughs> Opening with this song, though, as an album, I I don't think there's another song on here that you would open with.
3: Just makes a statement.
0: You're getting something you have never heard before. The
3: only thing from the Meatloaf Steinman repertoire that the first song is missing is the spoken word intro, (laughs) which the second song has. On a hot summer night, would
2: you offer your throat to the wolf with the red roses? Will he offer me his mouth? Yes. Will he offer me his teeth? Yes. Will he offer me his jaws? Yes. Will he offer me his hunger? Yes. Again, will he offer me his hunger? Yes. And will he
1: starve without me? Yes. Then does he love me? Yes. Yes.
2: On a hot summer night would you offer your throat to the wolf with the red roses? Yes. I bet you say that to all the boys. <laughs> stars falling through your trembling hands
1: Are you elected?
0: That intro was by Jim Steinman and Marcia McClain. You're absolutely right. Every every album would have the the one thing, and, 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 and in the case of Bad at All 2, it was an entire track of him telling a story. I think you were the one who said this to me before we started recording, and it's something that we haven't mentioned yet. Everything Jim Steinman writes, according to Meatloaf, is for this futuristic version of Peter Pan called Neverland, where... Jim Steinman was Peter Pan and Meatloaf was Tinkerbell. Make of that what you will. And you said that this was the uh, the wedding vows from that musical.
3: The spoken word portion. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> he thought these would be awesome wedding vows.
0: This song is the Phil Spector, or, or as Todd Rundgren said when he was talking about the intro, you know how everything kind of played out that you're in Spector uh, land. But no, it is very much that um, Be My Little Baby dun- just, again, cranked up to 11. This is the song I like to sing the most.
3: Well, for one thing, it's only five minutes long. Yeah. So it takes...
0: <laughs>
3: it takes a little less out of you. Yeah.
0: What was it, the, the Billy Joel song, The Entertainer? Took me years to write it. it. They were the best years of my life, but it was a beautiful song, but it ran too long. If you're going have to have a hit, they got to make it fit, so they cut it down to 305. That, <laughs> they didn't do that with any of these songs.
3: And he said, I mean, th- this really is that does have that feel of like an old-school rock and roll song. Mm-hmm. You know, it's got the tambourine, it's got the hand claps. And to me, the, the last minute again would they speed up the tempo. Has almost a late '50s Elvisy type of feel to it, almost.
0: Yeah, and the, dun dun dun, dun 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 dun. Yeah, it's just everything about it is is a celebration of a certain era of rock music. And it's funny because there have been apparently points in times where Steinman has been accused of ripping off Bruce Springsteen. The drummer for Bruce Springsteen was interviewed at one point. He and he basically made the point. That Springsteen was influenced by Phil Spector, and a lot of his music had that kind of feel to it. So it wasn't that Steinman was ripping off Springsteen; it was basically kind. Of, <laughs> it's not that Bill Gates ripped off Steve Jobs; they both just stole from Xerox.
3: Max Weinberg and Roy Thank you. from the East Street Band did play on this, mm-hmm. uh, as did a lot of the players from from out from. Rundgren's band Utopia, really made up the, the musical staff of the album.
0: I, I honestly think that, that Rundgren is the unsung hero of this album. The, you know, he was the one that helped put this particular track together. And the great thing about that documentary that I watched is that they played elements, like individual tracks from the songs. And it was kind of fascinating because it made me realize Something that I've known for years in editing podcasts is that, you know, the, these things are on different tracks. But it really, it hit me that these things are layered together. And all of this was done before digital. The the technical skill it took to put, you know, the, the title track and this one together and to make it sound as good as it did, it's almost magic to me.
3: As as he said, I, I am a big fan of Rundgren, and, and I agree that he is sort of the third man In the booth uh, here, Mm -hmm. you know, if anyone is really interested in in some thoughtful conversations on the past, present, and future of music, but music itself plus the industry, you could spend a couple hours on YouTube looking for you know Todd Rundgren Q and A sessions or Todd Rundgren speech or Todd Rundgren interview, and get some really interesting, thoughtful recommend that if anyone has a a couple hours to kill running down the rabbit hole at some point.
0: Dude is whip smart and and, and can articulate himself, and that's that doesn't always happen together. Back to this song
3: specifically, I mean, what this song is about is the awkward moment that has to happen in almost every relationship. Mm -hmm. By definition, someone says, I love you, before the other one does. I mean, unless it's a really bad rom-com and they say that exactly the same moment that's that's such a nerve-wracking moment right And this song just tells that story again it is true teen angst of the funnest almost most romantic variety
0: we talked before about how i was 12 and you were 15 and you know these concepts were just coming into our lives essentially there is something so universal about this song they dress it up in 60s rock but it's really something that, that, like you said, anybody can go through. And, you know, Meatloaf's describing, you know, through Steinman's lyrics, this, you know, the, these epic, this epic encounter. And really, when you think about it, it, it always plays that way in your head when it's happening. But when you really boil down how certain things happen it could be seen as almost mundane. Like, it's it, you romanticize things that are important. And it's not that they're not important. It's just, you know, our bodies are you know, shaking like a wave on the water. And it's <laughs> just about to be beginning to break. And it's just like, how do you put those words together?
3: Because when you're 14 yes. and you listen to her heart, you hear the whole world turning and see mm-hmm. the shooting stars falling through her trembling hands. Because that's what you feel. hmm He's not making it up. He's capturing it.
0: I think that is the key to Jim Steinman to be able to, to put those words together and Meatloaf being a very approachable singer. I don't mean this to be an insult to him. You look at him and you're like, God, if that guy can do it, I got a shot. You know? <laughs> like even now, as you know, I'm well into adulthood, I'm married, my wife and I have been together for, for almost 16 years now. I I can honestly say that every time I hear this song, it still makes me feel like the first time I kissed my wife and the first time I told her I loved her, which was in a waffle house, but you know, we're going to,
3: we're from the South. Of course it was.
0: (laughs) Actually, I'm not from the South. I just live in the South. She's from the South. So there you go.
1: (laughs)
2: God's come down here just To paradise, that's all I really need to make me stay. Just like a child again, heaven can wait. And all I got is time
3: day to hear. Like I think this song, the first the first of the ballads
1: mm-hmm.
3: on the album, is where we start to learn exactly why Steinman needed Me love as much as Meatloaf needed Steinman because mm-hmm. to sincerely pull off these lyrics is an accomplishment. <laughs> I mean the lyrics, if you're reading them, which I am <laughs> for this, they're pretty cheesy. They are. And there, they there is but no doubt you, of that. If you dress them up correctly, which Steinman and Rundgren do, and deliver them with such I don't know, honesty, with such earnestness if this were a pretty boy, you wouldn't buy it. Mm-mm, no. You buy it. And you know part of that is the whole package, but a lot, but a lot of that's the voice, too. You know, what he's able to pull off. I,
0: I think this is a terrific vocal performance. It's very classical in a lot of elements. And I think, again, that legitimizes the lyrics more. You know, heaven can wait in a band of angels wrapped up in my heart. It's just like like right away it just gets you and take you take me through the lonely night through the cold of the day it's just like you know it's like when somebody says what you're feeling but you didn't have the words to make those up mm-hmm. but suddenly someone says it and you get it
3: the placement of the song right here again mm-hmm. this is only the third song but we are 15 minutes into the album <laughs> we have to remember that right, we're 15 minutes in of bombast and this really pulls it down. And and then and this is, is a slightly more adult song. I think the mm-hmm. ballads tend to be a little more adult. Uh, and, and there's some regret to it. I like where it's placed here on the album from that perspective as well.
0: And this is definitely Peter Pan. Oh, yes. This is from that Neverland thing because that is definitely, you know, Heaven Can Wait is adulthood. Heaven can wait, and all I've got is time until the end of time. Th- there's a sadness there, and I love the placement on the album, because Bad to Hell gets you all like, you know, takes you on a musical journey. You took the words right out of my mouth, this is like this raucous rock song, and then it's just like, okay, we're gonna sit back and we're gonna chill a little bit,
3: tying into that uh, that idea of not growing up. You know, this is supposed to be part lullaby in the arrangement in the, in the music and, and Steinman says sort of one part music box as well. And if you listen to it with that in mind, you can, you can hear those, those elements in it. Mm-hmm. It just adds this wistfulness to it. I think
0: I would actually like a music box with this playing in it. <laughs> I think actually it could be kind of creepy a little bit, but uh,
3: the best music boxes are. But again in, in this song we have some more of that the classic sort of lyrical lyrical motif that you come to expect of the the angelic and the heavens and mm-hmm. prayers and paradise and dreams and and this taking place at night all of those elements uh, are revisited.
0: Jim Steinman with this album was writing a thesis and all of these songs are sections of that and he pulls it all together on right. the very last track mm-hmm. yes uh, he is teaching you his musical styles through this and I, I think heaven can wait is, is the, the slow song because even two of the other songs which are kind of slower in places they aren't slow to the extent that I think this song is are, are y'all revved up with uh, <laughs> well we have a place to go <laughs> with the next track But no about how Jim Steinman and this isn't an isn't an insult to Steinman, is a little geeky. Rundgrin poked fun at at this. This song is all Meatloaf. It, it really is, because Meatloaf was a football player in high school. And he was also into music. So it's it's almost like he he, he just sat there, had a conversation with Meatloaf about, you know, his, his high school experiences and then that's that's right. that's what this song is. It's all about a football hero who's also a rock and roll star that wants to get some, but he has no outlet for it. That is the
3: total and complete male teen fantasy. Mm -hmm. Not only is he a jock, he's also a rock star. Uh What could be better than that? Except even with these advantages, (laughs) he he can't get a girlfriend except in his dreams. What a great concept. Because if that's not 14-year-old boy, what is
0: Yeah, I was a varsity tackle with a hell of a block, and when I played my guitar, I made the canyons rock. I mean, it's just like... (laughs) It is so egotistical. But because Meatloaf is relatable, you don't find it obnoxious.
3: Exactly.
0: Because Meatloaf always struck me as the kind of guy that everybody liked, just because he had that kind of magnetic... magnetic personality about him this has like a great intro bit of music and then it just goes right into you know he doesn't let up and then it ends with you know the 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 mad piano tinkling you just want to drive as fast as humanly possible
3: and again from the vocal performance perspective the song has all the emotions that the lyrics are getting at and then Mm -hmm. again at the end that cranks up, like you said, the piano goes crazy. The last forty forty five seconds of this are seem to be you know double time, which has got to wear a guy out. I would think in in concert, but it ends so energetically because of that.
0: Well, it's funny because Meatloaf talks about when he when he auditioned for the Rocky Horror Show in L A. He was the L A. cast original Rocky and Professor Scott. When he was auditioning and they gave him whatever happened to Saturday Night. They told him he wouldn't be able to sing it like the lyrics were so fast and together that apparently no one really had the vocal range and ability to whatever happened to Saturday night. And see, even I can't do it like on the fly, but apparently he could do it. And that is shown off here because I was a varsity tackle in a hell of a block. And when I played my guitar, I made the canyons rock really fast on key and keeping everything together, that's impressive. And then, and then, you know, I was nothing but a lonely all-American boy looking out for something to do. You were nothing but a lonely all-American girl, but you were something like a dream come true. It's just like with Bad Out of Hell is he would take, you know, you know lyrics that he already sang, but do them in a completely different way. And to me, at the very end is when he finally got laid. <laughs> Like he was singing about it, he was singing about it, he saw his chance, he got done so he could go get done.
3: <laughs> and this is another real fifties style mm-hmm. classic rock and roll song. It even has the line leader of the pack. Just to it, point out that it's aware that it's kind of an homage.
0: But but you know what? This is also a trend setting song. Because it has a saxophone in it. Mm. And I think it can be said with some level of certainty that the 80s was the decade of the saxophone. <laughs> I don't know if it gets any credit for that. I'm kind of glad the saxophone was eventually retired around 1994.
3: Uh, and, and this is where Rundgren gets gets a lot of credit, specifically on, on this song. According to Steinman, guess what? His version of this song approached yeah, 10 minutes. Yes. Basically followed this guy throughout his whole life. You know, his 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 whole life was all revved up and no place to go. Rungrid did two things. One, he said, do they all have to be epics? (laughs) Can't one just be a four minute pop song or four minute rock and roll song? Can we do that just once? Again, it was his connections that got Edgar Winter in to play saxophone. Mm -hmm. It's that ability to pull in guys from his band, the E Street Band, other legitimate musical professionals. That obviously Steinman and Meatloaf would have had no way of getting in contact with. That almost brought a level of legitimacy to the production process in in terms of gathering the musicians, gathering the rest of the talent.
0: But it's funny because it brings in legitimacy, but at the same time, you still have that outsider feel to it. Oh, sure. But having somebody from the E Street Band is something they wouldn't have gotten on a studio album. They're underground. E Street Band is popular, but still kind of underground. And it all comes together in this dirty perfection.
3: One thing you mentioned previously was this idea of range Mm -hmm. for a singer. And I think sort of traditionally we think of range in terms of distance between the lowest note or the lowest octave and the highest, right? But I think here in what we're getting on this album in terms of Meatloaf is a sort of a different aspect of range mm-hmm. that involves like the styles that the singer can sing in. He can sing slow, fast, loud, soft. On this album, he hits all of those styles. and Sometimes in one song, he'll hit multiples of those styles. I think being able to jump back and forth is really, that's again, a vocal accomplishment.
0: When he does the end of this song, I mean, he's he's essentially screaming at the end, but it still sounds good, and I think that that's one why his voice should have been taken care of better. But two is what makes gives this a distinctive sound. I forget which artist it was, but I was listening I was listening to an interview with a comic book artist, and he says your style is everything you do wrong. I I think with Meatloaf, his style is everything he does right despite the odds. (laughs) (laughs) You can get somebody that can, that can sing loud and you get somebody that can belt it out and you get some people that are really good at the, at the fast lyrics. This guy is like the entire package. Again, I think one of the hallmarks uh, of their music in this album is that it could only happen with these people. You only get, she loves you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With the Beatle. they made it work in a way that I don't think other artists would have. Right. And it's a great way to end side one back when I had this on tape. (laughs) Um, This is going to date me, but you'll appreciate it. You listen to it, the song goes out, and then you hear click as the tape ends. (laughs) All right, going into song five. We are halfway through the album, and we have three songs to go.
3: Let me tell you, baby,
0: we could talk all night. But that ain't getting us nowhere. Baby, we can talk all night.
2: There's nothing left inside
3: And this is, in terms of the U.S., this is the biggest hit, mm-hmm. in terms of the pop charts. And again, Steinman you know, tells the story that you know, during the time of trying to get this thing written, as well as get figure out a way to get a label behind it, he was complaining to a cast member. Of course, it was a Wagner-inspired type of rock opera that he was doing, because all it's of Steinman. his songs are Wagner-inspired. And, you know, one of the cast members just told him, the reason the record companies don't like it is maybe it's just too complicated. And it was Jimmy, can you just write something simple? And that was where Two Out of Three Ain't Bad came from.
0: He says this is his uh, countryside coming Mm in. Because he said he always liked country music. And, you know, at one point in the special I watched, he was like, I want you, I need you. And I'm like, You know, you slow this down and put in a steel guitar, that is a country song. (laughs) I will always associate this song with the image of a window and snow outside, because back in the day when song compilations were a thing on television... Oh,
3: I know what you're going to say
0: there was a there was a yes. compilation of the, and this was on it and that was the image that was always on the screen like the two seconds they would play soft
3: so, rock classics of the ah, 70s or yes. something almost like that
0: again we get the weather report because <laughs> but what I like about this song is it's honest this is a person that recognizes on a fundamental level that he wants the woman he needs her but he's never going to be able to give her that final piece of the equation because somebody left him once and that kind of ruined him for life
3: and that is a real adult concept Mm -hmm. this is by far the most grown-up song you know we teased it a couple of songs ago i mean this is about the cycle of bad relationships
0: Mm -hmm. absolutely
3: this is not the teen angst song. This is the grown-up angst
0: song. This is the you're breaking up with your college girlfriend song. Yeah, I mean, that it's, it's
3: about you know not learning from mistakes, repeating patterns. You know, real stuff. It's funny for the challenge to be. Why don't you write something simple?
0: There's a lot
3: of depth in the song.
0: Yeah, I was about to say it sounds simple. You took the words right out of my mouth. Sounds complicated, but it's a simple concept to wrap your head around. This is the most radio friendly even at five minutes and twenty three seconds, but still you know you're 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 talking about a man that is i mean let's let's be fair the 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 person that is singing this song, and I'm not talking meatloaf i'm talking the person Steinman is writing right, from the perspective though. of is completely self centered oh, because yes. I, I love how he's in the middle of breaking up with somebody. And he turns it into about himself and somebody who broke up with him. <laughs> I mean, it's why when, when, I was, when I was listening to it last night, I was just like, God, that is, so, that is such a guy thing to do. Like, there is only one girl I, that I will ever love, and that was so many years ago. And then he goes on to describe how she broke up with him.
3: Because, <laughs> because that's really going to help, the, help yeah. the her and girl feel so much better about this.
0: No, no, really, really. Just because someone broke up with, broke my heart, I am now shattering yours. So congratulations. The cycle is complete. I was once the student, but now I am the master.
3: (laughs) But, but, even in the psychological basis for the song, almost, Mm -hmm. it is still insanely over the top. Oh, yes. And again, here, Meatloaf somehow manages it to make it sound reasonable and sincere. You've been cold to me so long, I'm crying icicles instead of tears. It's laughable.
0: I have always heard it. I am crying, I suppose, instead of tears. Oh. And you know what? That works too yeah. in a weird way. Like, you know, he's usually better at uh at articulating his his <laughs> uh. Thing. So wow, and, that kind of changes it
3: for me. And then we get the bridge, which is also pretty silly you know, realizing that some things are just never going to happen. You know, the the protagonist in the song is just not going to be what the other person wants him to be. And even there about, you know, you'll never find gold on a sandy beach and you're looking for a ruby in a mountain of rocks and then then the classic line, but there ain't no Coupe de Ville hiding at the bottom of the Cracker Jack box.
0: Inherently, there's a silliness to all the songs. Steinman's like you know there there are, there are markets where they don't even know what the cracker jacks are so <laughs> but but what i love is that it, it it does that bridge and then it has a second bridge because it's jim steinman of course uh the man will have like 30 bridges and you know it, it it's it, it's it's like this weird you know it's like new york city there's three bridges and 20 million <laughs> endings but uh you know then it goes i can't lie i can't tell you that i'm something i'm not no matter how i try I'll never be able to give you something something that I just haven't got. Okay, that's somebody being real. And then he goes, then this girl broke up with me. <laughs> and repeating what he said to her, what she, he's saying to this girl, this girl said to him. So there's kind of a cycle to this song too. Right. But I love how it ends exactly how it begins. And that's why it's a good radio song but also why i will always think of this as a country song because it kind of has that element to it
3: and if two out of three ain't bad is sort of the radio hit probably next is the most memorable song paradise by the dashboard light
0: (laughs) i remember every little thing as if it happened only yesterday We have both talked on our separate shows that there is a difference between something being a favorite and something being the best. Emily and
3: I refer to it as something being good versus something being awesome. Awesome is not a level of... This is not a measure of quality.
0: Going with that theory, this is my favorite song right. from the album. Uh, simply because it is so long. It's a three-act play. It's an entire story of this guy trying to get laid. He does and it completely ruins his life. And you get that all in 8 minutes and 28 seconds.
3: But it sounds like a it's but it sounds like a party song.
0: It's so descriptive. I remember every little thing as if it happened only yesterday parking by the lake, and there was not another car inside. Again, Todd Rundgren said, he can't see Jim Steinman doing this, but he can see Jim Steinman thinking about doing exactly. it. Exactly. It's so awesome, and, and I'm using awesome in the term that you and Emily use. That's right. The term awesome. Because, you know, you have him going through the first verse, and then Ellen Foley comes in on the chorus, And suddenly the entire dynamic of the song changes. And then it's back to him. And then it's back to her. And then it's Phil Rizzuto. There is some great self-awareness, by the way, that if you're going to have somebody do a play-by-play, get somebody that actually does a play-by-play. I just love that he takes the cheesy idea of getting to different body parts on a woman and putting that in baseball terms and actually has that play out and right before he gets to home she calls a flag on the play to mix my sports metaphors (laughs) and it becomes the quintessential guy-girl conversation from when you were a teenager she wants a commitment and he wants you to sleep on it sleep with him anyway and he'll get back to you on that later (laughs) Most of the songs have a sense of humor to them. And boy does this one have the best comedic payoff. Because Will You Love Me Forever? Will let me sleep on it? Will you love me forever? Well I couldn't take it anymore. I thought I was crazy. I swear upon my on my mama's grave that I will love you to the end of time. I swore I will love you to the end of time. And now we're waiting for the end of time. (laughs) It's basically if I'm gonna extrapolate the song further, it's the guy that got his high school girl pregnant. They got married at like 17, and by 25 they hate each other. <laughs>
3: yep. Exactly. What a dark underpinning. Yes. For what is a popular, fun song? This would have been on you know the rock station. Album oriented rock would have been been the format that would have played the mm-hmm. eight, the eight and a half minute version of this. Episode. And it's up tempo. It's fun. Again, it's got that 50s, 60s vibe to it. But again, it again one decision, one night, and your life is ruined. happy song.
0: I now understand that it's a song that is a point of contention because on the album, Ellen Foley is the female voice. Ellen Foley's the one that went with Meatloaf up and down, you know, every you know, music studio in in New York City, you know. But when it came time to tour, Ellen Foley was traveling between L.A. and New York. She was doing a TV series. She was doing something on Broadway. She couldn't tour. So they got this, what today we would call more media (laughs) presentable, with still a really good voice, Carla DeVito. So she was the one that went on tour. Now, when it came to the video for this, because even though music videos weren't really a thing, they still did videos, she was the face because it would have cost them so much money to re-record the entire song just for the video now the thing that gets me about ellen foley is it's one of those things where you have two things in your life that you think are completely separate and suddenly they're smashed together my favorite sitcom of all time just flat out i think night court is not only my favorite it's one of the best sitcoms ever created you had uh, harry anderson as judge harold t stone Richard Mull, John Laroquette, One of the female love interests they had for Harry was this lawyer named Billy, played by Ellen Foley. And I didn't know, as I was sitting there up in my room, listening to Paradise by the Dashboard Light, and would go downstairs and watch an episode of Night Court, that it was the same person. Like, I never knew. And now I can't unhear it. This is the song, ironically, with a with girl that broke up with me uh, about a year or two after this happened. I put this tape on in my car and we were going somewhere and she's like, do you have that really fun one? And I'm like, what are you talking about? You know, the one where the guy's like trying to get to second base? And I'm just like, Paradise by the dashboard. Like, yeah! It's just like, See? <laughs> <laughs> so it proves your point. I mean, maybe it's just because we've
3: each listened to it 147 times that the actually underlying darkness finally sunk in. I don't know.
0: <sighs> but for crying out loud, do we have anything else to say on this one?
3: That works for me. I was alone
2: till you were found and I never knew how far down I was falling before I reached the bottom I was cold and you were fire and I never knew how the power could be burning On the edge of the ice field And now the chilly California wind Is blowing down our bodies again And we're sinking deeper and deeper in on the Oh, I know you belong inside my aching heart. And can't you see my faded leaves bursting apart? And don't you hear Don't you hear me screaming, how was I to know I'm in the middle
3: emotional way to end an emotional album oh my god the legend has it that it was a live performance of this song i don't know if it was a gathering of record executives Mm -hmm. within the company because they were on a teeny tiny label that was owned by i guess epic i think it was you know they brought in the musicians to get the record execs and i guess you know the salesmen excited about what was going to be you know what songs they were going to push to radio and you know where the payola and the coke was going to go I mean I mean, where they were going um... <laughs> to and it was a live performance of this song with just Steinman on piano and Meatloaf belting it out that really got the company to realize that maybe this album was worth pushing
0: this is Steinman's thesis this, this is everything he has known this for. is what we've been building to a bunch of different Meatloaf albums. Two of them are live albums. He did one with the Australian Symphony and the Bathroom. Uh, yes. Which is epic. But I think it was during that concert that he sang this. He goes, I've only performed this live three times. And I thought about that. I'm like, they didn't perform this every night? And then I'm like, they couldn't. It would kill them to do yes. this. When I was listening to this last night, I was driving around and there was a rainstorm going on, so there was kind of a that of course, built up. Of course there was.
3: Were you driving along a windswept beach with angels and moonlight as well? On your motorcycle?
0: There was a tree down the <laughs> I listened to the whole first verse and the first chorus. And then in the middle of it the violins come in, and then it hit me. It was just him and the piano for like three minutes of this song. Yep. You didn't need anything else. It was just perfect.
3: And it, and it is 180 degrees from the bombast that starts the album, uh-huh. and which was the driving force. But this is just as emotional, just as raw, just as intense, but in a totally different way.
0: Because it builds you have the first verse and the first chorus with just the piano then they start bringing it in and then the drums really kick in and the guitars really kick in and it ends on this epic crescendo that I gotta tell you every time I listen to this song when I'm really paying attention to it not when it's just on in the background which happens from time to time but when I'm really into it I wanna nap afterwards I I just it puts you on this journey like no other. I mean, it's eight minutes and forty-five seconds long. Yeah. Oddly enough, it's shorter than Bat Out of Hell by a full minute, and yet feels longer. Yes.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I think that's just because it's more raw on an emotional level, so you're living in it more. Uh, we get our weather report again, <laughs> uh, and we get beach conditions too, which is kind of nice, you know. You
3: know. a yeah, the chilly California wind and it's chilly California sand.
0: For- you know, every time I hear that, it's like he's really, really pushing that this is in California. I don't know <laughs> why he's really pushing this, that this is in California. Maybe
3: it's because they're from New York and they just want to make sure everyone knows that this is <laughs> Look, we can do West Coast songs, too.
0: There is just so much going on here. It is the perfect way to end the album. You listen to this from Bad Out of Hell to this. You have run this gamut in ways that other albums don't do because no one does this type of music.
3: But when we're 15, our lives run the gamut of these emotions every Mm -hmm. day, probably in the course of 49 minutes. We we go through all of these emotions.
0: I I remember on the VH1 storytellers that Meatloaf did, uh, a woman stood up right before they did, you took the words right out of my mouth, and she said, you know, I felt like you were talking to me. But I think that's why a certain, and I'm not even talking like all teenagers, but certain teenage peers will get this. That's who this music is for. And it's it's both universal and specific, which again is why Steinman and Meatloaf together kind of defy all conventions. Total Eclipse of the Heart is a great song it's a weird video it, it's a good song and it was a pop three hit obviously you know they, they still put it on compilations today but that song and making love out of nothing at all all of those songs are great but do you ever listen to those songs and go man it would be just so much better if meatloaf was singing this And on one of those songs, you actually got to hear that because uh, the big Celine Dion song, it's all coming back to me now. Meatloaf actually eventually got to sing it, so I I was very happy to hear that. (laughs) There is a synthesis between these two people working together that is apparently kind of destructive to them. After this album, they, they started working on Dead Ringer and their working relationship fell apart. And they just didn't work together for like almost 10 years. And then they did Bad Out of Hell, too, and they worked together for a little while, and then it it just fell apart again. (laughs) The better songs on the non-Steinman Meatloaf Album Meatloaf Albums are the ones that are written by Steinman.
3: That is correct.
0: But this is the one that is the best song on the album. Lyric-wise, performance-wise, this is everything wrapped into one. And I can't listen to it as much as the other songs because it's so emotionally draining to do.
3: And Steinman claims that it's his favorite song in terms of the lyrics, is this song as well. the so One, he's
0: proudest of stuff he says. He has every right to be. Paradise has some fun lyrics. And, you know, we, we, we had a lot of fun at the expense of two out of three ain't bad. But in terms of painting an emotional picture, you just put everything out on the table and he still had more to give. That's the amazing right. thing, is that for a lot of artists, this would be it. This is your right. this is your peak, and you're not getting any better than this. And he may have not surpassed this one, but he definitely kept it on the same level with a lot of his other songs.
3: For me, there are a couple that stand out. One is, I was damned, and you were saved, mm-hmm. and I never knew how enslaved I was kneeling in the chains of my master. (sighs) It's crazy. It's over the top. That one works for me. And then the other one is uh, towards the end when he talks about, and there's a border to somewhere waiting and we've got a tank full of time. And does that describe youth perfectly? Mm -hmm. We have got a tank full of time.
0: Those lyrics kind of make the chilly California Motif kind of seem a little silly, but again, it just works, you know,
3: and and meatloaf is able to make it work. And I, I'm sure it, it's the theater background
1: mm-hmm. that, oh, he figures, that he
3: figures out how to inhabit these this character. As you said, in concert, he, in essence, is playing basically a different character for every song. A lot of the skill in his vocal performance is being able to do that and being able to tap in to exactly what what Steinman is giving him lyrically.
0: For coming to my room when you know I'm alone, for finding me a highway and for driving me home, that encapsulates music. Like, this is almost Steinman's love song to music. Right. And the music of his youth. So, uh, I mean, it, it almost makes me want to cry every time I hear it, just because it is that beautiful. They have that little instrumental... Violin part, and whenever they have like a documentary with Meatloaf, that is always the music they play to set the scene of his youth. They'll show like like 70s era footage of New York City, and that's playing in the background. And it, and there's a reason for that, is it works like really really well.
3: And I think you know these sort of universal themes that we're getting at is why I mean this is one of the depending how you count it's a little shaky on some of the numbers, but Universally acknowledged as one of the top 10, 15 selling albums of all time. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Somewhere in the neighborhood of 40 million copies. And regularly sells, the stat I saw, 100,000 to 200,000 copies a year. Still.
0: That's not people rebuying the album over and over again. That is people discovering the album. It's kind of funny for something that was produced in the 70s, has music that sounds like it's from the 50s and 60s, kind of looks forward to the 80s, still holds up in 2015. Right,
3: you can see the universality of it in the sense that it is a, a very American album. Mm-hmm. And yet, about two-thirds of those album sales are outside the U.S. One stat I saw is that, as of whenever this fact was updated within a few years ago the album had never been out of the uk top 200 yeah in 35 years yeah that is how regularly it is selling
0: on that documentary i saw some of the footage they showed of like you know talk shows and stuff playing it it was it was a british talk show or i don't know what it was andy would probably have a better idea uh, than I do, so it's just kind of interesting that they were able to bring this over to the UK, and apparently it was big in Australia too. Right. I mean, it was big in Germany, but you know Hasselhoff was big in Germany, so I don't know if that's. <laughs> yeah, likely. I, I, I do count that There's something about it that just hits everybody the, the right way. Now there are people that don't like meatloaf, and that's fine. You're wrong, but that's fine. But I think I hear more people even kind of begrudgingly say, yeah, I like that, then "Ah, I just hate that. You kind of have to coax them sometimes, you know?
3: In preparation of this, of this recording, and for the eventual release of the episode I Facebook that I was listening to this album last night, and my Facebook post included the phrase, don't judge me. Yeah. Because my thought was that this is not, this is not cool kid music. I mean, this is, again, pimple-faced 15-year-old music. And, you know, I think there could be a little hipster judgment, a little... I can see people looking down their nose at this. But like you said, those are just people who don't get it. Yeah. <laughs> those are yeah. people who don't like fun.
0: And, and I don't normally say that, because I'm not the type of person that likes to, to like be judgmental or, or, or be pretentious about it because you know you can't be pretentious about meatloaf yeah, it's almost like a, exactly. it's impossible but at the same time it's one of those things that i'm pretty i'm pretty steadfast and it's like if you don't like it that's fine you're wrong but but this that and the other and it's silly and it's over the top yeah uh please tell me in somewhere in that that it's a bad thing uh because once <laughs> you hit on something being a bad thing i might agree with you everything you said their words and they're coming out in a particular order, but everything about them is wrong. So just, you know, I wonder how this is going to be received, because it's funny, because <laughs> it seemed like a bunch of the two True Freaks people were the ones kind of chiming in. I did too, just because I thought it was funny that we were both kind of listening to it at different points in the album, but pretty much at the same That's time. That's
3: right. But like you said, most of the reaction I got to that post was positive. So that was good to see. And, I, and, and, I think, and, and it sort of took me by surprise. Uh a little bit, because I don't know what other people think of this.
0: It's kind of funny because what I have found, especially in the, in the circles we run in online, that thing you think is your guilty pleasure is more universally loved than you think of. You know, my, my one of my best friends in high school, her name was Heather and she loved me. I mean, she's the one that had all the albums in between bat one and two, you know, she, she she was committed, and she saw him in concert when Fat Out of Hell Two was a thing. Just just hearing her talk about the music, it was like it was the first time I was like somebody gets it on the same level that I do. We, we made the Stanley and Jack Kirby comparison. Meatloaf would go on to do a lot of pop type music. Uh, you know, he would go on to you know, to, to create Ravage twenty ninety nine, so to speak. Uh, and Steinman would go on to create fourth world type concepts with music. You know, going from working with Bonnie Tyler to the couple tracks off of the Streets of Fire soundtrack, which are the ones that I listen to over and over and over again. Those are awesome songs. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard any of the demos from his Batman musical. They're kind of crazy. But, you know, he's Kirby. He's the one that has these brand ideas. Yeah. But no one can pull them together quite as well as Meat Love could. You know, Bonnie Tyler, very gifted singer, didn't quite have the same thing that Meat Love did. She had the emotion. I don't think she had the staying power and in the, in the longevity that Meat Love does. This album is both exciting and great, and it's kind of sad at the same time. Because while they would both go on to do great music and... This wasn't necessarily their peak. This was the most special of their collaborations, yes. Uh, and, and, and and for crying out loud, you know I love this.
2: For taking in the rain when I'm feeling so dry. For giving me the answers when I'm asking you why. And my, oh my. For that I thank you For taking in the sun when I'm feeling so cold For giving me a child when my body is old And don't you know that I need you
0: Thanks for listening. And join us every Monday for new episodes of Two Two True True Freaks.
2: You know I love
1: you. Okay,
3: well, we have to end on that. Yeah. (laughs) I'm sorry. There's nothing else to say. (laughs) Cut and scene.
0: Meatloaf told a story about uh, Paradise by the Dashboard Light that basically they had this whole Broadway thing, gonna go all the way, tonight, I go, like like going up and down and all that. And Rundgren was no, say it four times and get out of there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And he, and you know what? He was right.
3: Emily's laughing. Emily laughs every time I say that. (laughs) That's the Uh, Michael Bailey.